Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome uh, to the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health, a meeting ground for policymakers, scientists, and students to engage in a dynamic dialogue. We are honored to have uh, today Kathleen Sibelius, the 21st Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. Secretary Sibelius undertook her role as the nation's top health official in 2009. Before then, she served as governor of Kansas and was described by Time Magazine as one of America's top five governors. Forbes has named Secretary Sibelius as one of the 100 most powerful women in the world. Secretary Sibelius joins us today during a historic time in healthcare in the United States. As you all know, three years ago, President Barack Obama signed the Affordable Care Act, introducing a set of reforms to be rolled out over several years, and Secretary Sibelius is leading numerous efforts to implement this groundbreaking law. In fact, this is probably one of the largest efforts going on anywhere in the world at actual implementation of a major healthcare reform. So it has huge implications, both for the US, but also globally. In addition, her role and the role of the Department of Health and Human Services encompasses critical efforts that touch the lives of millions of people, including emergency health responses in disaster and early education. As many of you know, former Harvard School of Public Health professor Howard Koh now serves as Assistant Secretary for Health at HHS and also contributes to the essential efforts of making and keeping Americans healthy. Secretary Sibelius is here today to talk about more than policy making and implementation. She has been invited to share her invaluable insights into leadership and decision making. I know we all look forward to hearing about her unique experiences. I also am pleased to introduce Sharon Begley, who is the senior US health and science correspondent for Reuters and moderator of today's event. Since its launch, the forum at Harvard School of Public Health has mounted numerous collaborations with Reuters, which extends the global reach and impact of our work. As I speak, this event is being webcast live on the internet, and so I welcome our global online audiences today and if this forum is anything like all the previous ones, we anticipate that literally tens of thousands of people will be sharing in this occasion. We will dedicate a large section of today's event to a Q&A with the audience, and I encourage all of you to participate in these important discussions with your questions. With that said, I wanted to express my deep appreciation to Secretary Sibelius for joining us today and invite her to the podium to, to make some initial remarks. Thank you very much for being here. Well, hello, everybody. It's really nice to have a chance to be with all of you at the Harvard School of Public Health, and thank you to Dean Frank for inviting me to participate in this forum. Um, you know, I noticed there was a lot of excitement in Boston today, and I was thrilled that people were eager to greet the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Um, I guess it has something to do with Red Sox, but who knew? Who knew? Um, 
I, I am pleased to have a chance to be here with uh, certainly distinguished faculty and the dean, um, but particularly with students. Um, as the dean has already said, my assistant secretary of health, Howard Coe, uh, we stole from the Harvard School of Public Health. We have lots of um, health leaders well-connected, um, including Chris Hager, who is here with us today, who is the regional director of Region 1, um, which includes Massachusetts, and she is on the faculty at the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, I, I can't imagine a more exciting time to be in public health than right now. We are in the midst of probably the most significant transformation in healthcare in at least 50 years in the United States, and some would say ever. Um, what's underway now has really never been seen. And what I also know about public health is that um, people don't seek that degree to get rich or famous. And if you're seeking that degree to get rich or famous, you might need to rethink a little bit. Um, but most of you are part of this school and these studies to really make a difference, to have an impact on a community, on families, on uh, the country, and frankly, on the world. And that's a very exciting path to choose. Um, I was asked to say a little bit of something about my own pathway, which is a little unusual. Um, I was born in a, into a political family. My dad ran for office when I was five. Um, I really grew up thinking everybody in the fall put up yard signs and went door to door. Nobody ever told me it was a voluntary activity. Um, I watched him, though, um, win some elections, lose some elections, but do work he cared about deeply, make a huge impact on um, a city level, on Congress, uh, at the state level as governor. I married into a political family. My husband's father served in Congress. And when I moved to Kansas, um, I really didn't have any friends or family there beyond my husband. I worked in a variety of things and then ended up running for the legislature uh, where I worked on issues from early childhood to healthcare. Probably the most um, difficult and riskiest race I ever ran was for insurance commissioner. Uh, because when I ran, no woman and no Democrat in the history of our state had ever been elected to the office. Uh, there were only um, two men who preceded me um, who had served for a total of 50 years. And when they said in the Kansas Insurance Department, we've always done it this way, they meant always. There was no short-term memory. Um, so that turns out to be probably one of the most significant jobs in preparation for where I am now that I ever had. Uh, because one of the things that the federal government doesn't do is regulate insurance. It's done at the state level. So having had that eight years of experience has been enormously helpful. Um, I ended up serving in the legislature, being elected twice as insurance commissioner, and then twice as governor. And in that time, health policy, early childhood education, children and families, science and technology were areas that I got to work on a lot, cared a lot about, and helped to move forward. So again, a, a very interesting pathway to this position. I was an early endorser of 
President Obama's. I got to know him in 04 when he ran for president and when he asked me to be in his cabinet and be in this particular position, although I really hadn't thought about leaving my job as governor, hadn't thought about um, not finishing the term, this seemed like a, a wonderful fit. And I knew that he was committed to trying to pass comprehensive health care and had some very keen ideas about early childhood education and children and families that fit very well with my interests. Um, let me just say one other thing about um, HHS, because there's a lot of attention and focus certainly on the Affordable Care Act, and I hope some of your questions will get to that. But we have a very broad um, department and an incredibly diverse portfolio that includes certainly the work that we're doing um, in CMS with the Affordable Care Act. But CMS also, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, probably run the two biggest insurance programs in the world, Medicare and Medicaid, um, which include about 100 million Americans right now. Uh, NIH does uh, the most uh, health research uh, in the world and just recently announced, among other things, a project, a multi-year project on brain mapping, which NIH will help to lead with public and private partners. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration has about 25 cents of every consumer dollar is purchases a product that is regulated by the FDA and brand new authorities in both tobacco and food safety that um, are part of this administration. The president has just announced a major early childhood initiative as part of the second term, really building a framework from birth to school that we will play a large role in with Head Start and early Head Start and childcare and home visiting. Uh, mental health services as part of our department are a key service, but certainly after uh, the tragedy at Newtown and the discussions about mental health parity finally coming online, we are in a brand new era of uh, dealing with mental health services and supports. Um, and we have a huge global health portfolio with workers in about 65 countries, um, a lot going on in this administration beyond PEPFAR, which had been the major global health initiative in the prior administration, but we're in maternal and child health, uh, dealing a lot with um, disease information, and certainly as you see this new uh, bird flu outbreak in China, we realize how important that surveillance and support and uh, connection with CDC is. So we have a lot of um, important initiatives here in this country and around the globe underway. And I'm just really delighted to have a chance to spend a little time with you today. And I look forward to talking about the topics that you're going to find most interesting. So thank you very much for having me. Well, you have a very interesting job. Um, uh, again, my name is Sharon Begley. I'm a science and health reporter at Reuters. Um, just a teeny bit of housekeeping. Um, I will engage the secretary uh, for a little bit in some questions about both healthcare, health, uh, and leadership, um, since this uh, forum is doing double duty. Um, and uh, toward the uh, end of the program, we will, of course, take uh, audience questions. 
Um, you may think that the mics in front of you will serve that purpose, but in fact they will not. They are not live today. So as you think of your questions, please also think of how you will make your way to the microphones at the sides of the room. Um, but you have a few minutes to figure all that out. Um, uh, Secretary Sebelius, um, I of course have to start with the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, um, which is not a simple piece of legislation, not simple to implement. But I wonder if you would tell us, as the implementation has been going along for well, three years now, um, what has uh, been unexpectedly difficult and what perhaps has gone more smoothly than you uh, anticipated when the President signed the law? Well, I think that um, probably no one fully anticipated when you have a law that phases in over time how um, much confusion that creates for a lot of people. Um, so that has been difficult when the law was signed and people immediately did not get affordable health insurance. Um, they were surprised and a lot were disappointed. Um, but now understand that this is a gradual phase in and, and the full implementation won't be until 2014. Um, I think that um, the second thing that probably has been more difficult is just the politics. It has been relentless and continuous. And I would say I think there was some hope that once the Supreme Court ruled in July, and then once an election occurred, there would be a sense of this is the law of the land, let's get on board, let's make this work. And yet we find ourselves still um, having sort of state-by-state -state political battles, and again, creating what I think is just a lot of confusion. It's very difficult when people live in a state where there is a daily declaration, we will not participate in the law, uh, for them to figure out whether or not there are any benefits that they will actually have a right to access. And so getting that word out, setting up the infrastructure has been um, more complicated. I would say the good news is that we already have millions of people who are benefiting. Uh, we know that about six million young adults, and young adults were the second highest um, age group of uninsured Americans prior to the passage of this law. So about seven million young people now are on their parents' plan, and that will continue on. And that was done almost um, overnight. Uh, we have millions of people, probably 70 or 80 million, who now have preventive services with no co-pays and no co-insurance and are taking advantage of that. Whether they're in Medicare or in private insurance companies, again, I think that was rolled out with very little uh, fanfare. Medicare benefits have actually increased, so seniors are uh, seeing a 50% um, discount on brand name drugs. Uh, they are uh, have better choices in Medicare Advantage and are paying lower prices. So some of those things are actually taking place, rolling out uh, without, again, a lot of um, difficulty and very exciting um, initiatives underway through our Innovation Center, which is kind of the research and development arm of CMS, which has never existed before. Testing ways to improve the quality of care and lower costs at the same time, and we've got some early, very promising results. So those pieces of the puzzle are working. We've got a really, I think, terrific framework, and now we, we have the last final big piece. 
So improve care and uh, at least control costs, which of course was one of the points that the President made when he was you encouraging bet. Congress to pass the law, the whole idea of bending the cost curve. Um, which, uh, just to pick up on your last point, which elements of the ACA do you think have the greatest chance to rein in health care spending, which was more than a sixth of the uh, national economic output, I think. So That's right. a big number. Well, let's start with just a quick snapshot. Um, prior to the Affordable Care Act, um, America spent just about twice as much as any developed country per capita on health care. And our health results look like we're a developing country. So it, we live sicker and die younger than many of our global neighbors, and yet we spend more than anybody else. So that is um, in and of itself unsustainable and pretty unacceptable. Um, what we've seen that is beginning to really um, take hold are, first of all, some different ways of paying for care. Rather than, and again, um, what we can do is change the payment systems in, in Medicare and work with states to change the payment systems in Medicaid. Uh, this is not really private insurance, but a lot of private insurers are following this lead. Rather than paying for volume, do more tests, get paid more money. Stay in the hospital longer, get paid more money. Do you know 15 things, get paid more money uh, with very little attention to outcomes. There is really a shift going on, testing various strategies of bundling care, having doctors work more closely together, particularly with patients who have multiple symptoms, comorbidities, uh, working on preventable readmissions so when a patient leaves a hospital, they don't come cycling right back in because they've never seen a health provider, working on strategies like early elective deliveries, which still in the United States occur on a very regular basis and can cause not only serious um, complications in terms of medical needs for that baby for the rest of his or her life, but also lots of days in the NICU. Um, strategies like that seem to be, again, having a real impact. We have the lowest spending in Medicare, the lowest cost increases in the last three years ever in the history of the program, ever in 50 years, in spite of the fact that we've got 11,000 baby boomers a day turning 65. We have actually decreased spending in Medicaid from 2011 to 2012. It went down almost 2%, which is, again, unheard of. And some of the lowest private health spending that we've ever seen. So there is, um, you know, while there isn't a direct cause and effect yet, there are some, um, both the Congressional Budget Office and our independent actuary said, they are really beginning to see some cost restraint based on some of the measures from the Affordable Care Act. Um, picking up on your point about coordinating care, um, HHS, of course, does not operate in a vacuum. Um, and one of the uh, ideas for coordinating care is through uh, variously called accountable care organizations, medical homes, et cetera. Um, I'm wondering if you have any concerns about whether, as the, ju the Justice Department looks into uh, consolidation in healthcare, uh, hospitals buying up medical practices, et cetera, um, arguably a great way to coordinate care, but of course Justice has uh, expressed concerns about um, uh, antitrust, uh, monopoly markets, et cetera. Um, 
how big a concern do you, how big a obstacle perhaps um, do you think that might be to the kind of uh, coordination of care that would address uh, costs? Well, I think there's a, you know, a tight balance between um, a coordinated care strategy and a monopoly. Um, and where exactly that right balance is, is um, I think being constantly reviewed, which is why to be an accountable care organization, um, actually the Justice Department is involved in part of the sign-off and we are involved in part of the sign-off to make sure that at the end of the day you really don't, um, by uh, allowing mergers to occur, allowing coordinated strategy really tilt toward then having a monopoly and having no price control whatsoever. And, and that's going to be a constant tension, but I think it's, it's an appropriate tension. Um, you know, we have some integrated health organizations um, that have proven to be very effective healthcare strategies. I mean, the Mayo Clinic and um, Kaiser Permanente and others who have um, uh, lots of pieces of the puzzle all together. Um, there are others that uh, arguably in, in smaller communities can drive prices um, astronomically. So I think, I think having that constant oversight is really appropriate. Um, and any law is complicated as the ACA, um, and as you were pointing out in your remarks, this is a huge, a sea change in how American healthcare is going to be delivered. Um, there will, will inevitably be winners and losers. You touched on some of the winners, um, certainly uh, uh, young people under 26 who can now stay on their parents' policies. and. Um, I'm, I'm guessing you think that all the American, the entire American public is a winner, but I wondered if you would um, break that down just a little bit into who you think will really come out um, ahead and who perhaps less so as the act is fully implemented. Well, I think the, um, going back to um, one of my points earlier about the snapshot of America, the third piece of that snapshot, which I failed to give at the outset, is that we um, not only spend more than anyone else and have mediocre health results, but have the largest number of uninsured in the world when you compare with other countries who are developed. So we have those three situations going on. Um, certainly people who have no insurance today or who have very um, meager insurance, which is more like mortgage protection, it isn't health insurance, uh, will be substantially better off at the end of the day when this is fully implemented because um, in the past they have not had the benefit of any affordable care if they didn't have coverage through an employer. Um, but I would say, Sharon, that the, we make a mistake, I think, as a country not adding the costs of the status quo to everybody. Um, so we have less productive workers because many people who don't have access to primary care and preventive care end up acutely ill, end up with days off, end up in the hospital, or end up having to quit a job. Uh, we have kids who don't do as well in school as they would if they had had a checkup and could see the blackboard or could hear the teacher or you know, did not have some kind of chronic condition which made them less able to function. We know that on average, everybody with health insurance is paying about $1,000 more for their policies to pay for the uncompensated care of people coming in and out of emergency rooms. We know that um, there are 
lots of people in the medical profession whose skills and duties are not appropriately applied. They're delivering primary care in an emergency room and less able to then deal with acute care that people have too long in the hospital because we have too many hospital-acquired infections and they're not going out the door. So while I think that there may be some shifts a bit in the market, um, you know, insurance is about pooling risk, not about segmenting the market. Um, if you wanted to pay for your own health care, you'd pay it out of pocket. If you're going to be part of an insurance pool, um, that is about pooling risk. So women right now can be legally charged 50 to 75 percent more than men for the same policy. Gender rating in 2014 will be illegal. Being a woman, by the way, will no longer be a pre-existing condition. It's about time. Um, so that will shift you know, that market a bit. Um, younger uh, folks will be pooled not directly. They won't pay exactly the same rates as older Americans, but there'll be less of a huge swing in some of the marketplace. So there will be some I think some rate adjustment, but I th overall, it will provide for the first time some peace of mind where you cannot be kicked out of the market with a pre-existing condition. You don't have to be job locked because you're terrified of leaving this employer and maybe never having coverage again. You can retire early or become an entrepreneur or follow your dream because it, it isn't relying on insurance. If you your child is born with a pre-existing health condition, you don't have to be terrified every day that um, not only will you lose insurance for that child, but if he or she turns 18, they'll never get coverage again in their lives. So I think we haven't fully anticipated what a, a fully insured health market will look like and how many benefits that has beyond just the health needs of the individual getting that care. Um, as you know, the forum today is doing double duty, uh, also exploring leadership questions. Um, I'm wondering what leadership role you see for HHS in controlling or constraining the premium costs for the policies that will be offered in the exchanges, and in particular, um, is does that role include restraining the costs of uh, premiums, or will a policy offered on the exchange get HHS's blessing as long as it offers uh, the essential health benefits and meets other criteria? I mean, how strongly do you think HHS should crack the whip there? Well, again, I think it's a it's a balance, and um, I saw this as insurance commissioner. Um, Every state in the country has an insurance department. Every state in the country is responsible for the regulation of companies selling policies in that state. And that will not change under this law. So making sure that companies pay their claims on time, making sure that they have, frankly, enough money in the bank uh, to pay the claims, and then reviewing the rates as they go into the market, um, looking carefully at what's being charged, what the profit level is, why a rate increase might be needed, what the underlying um, actuarial value is. So that um, is going on, but one of the things that has changed is we have given a lot of resources to states to actually up their game, uh, make sure that states who were not in the past doing thorough reviews, didn't have actuaries on staff, didn't have often the legal framework to, to do 
um, rape reviews now are beginning to come into the business. What I saw, though, in that job is that competition does a lot. Transparency does a lot. No company wants to be the highest priced company in the market and let people look side by side. They do a lot to try and make sure that that does not happen. Since companies for the first time uh, who offer policies in the exchange will have to basically have the same kinds of benefits, for the first time ever in the history of the United States, they'll have to compete for service and customers, um, not by cherry picking the market, trying to figure out you know, who can only insure people who promise never to get sick, and um, which has been sort of part of the strategy of insurance companies. The more carefully you could design a plan so that you discourage somebody from uh, enrolling who might be ill, and the more you can insure people who promise never to get sick. And then, frankly, if they do get sick, close that block of business, raise the rates, drive them out, and, and drop the rates for newly insured. That won't happen anymore. So some of just the market rules will mean that competition is there. We, um, in the new markets, will get rid of a lot of the administrative costs uh, because uh, what is filed is straightforward. A lot of the marketing costs will be done, actually, by the on-the-ground folks. And we have a new rule, the 80-20 rule. Companies can't charge um, rates where more than 20 cents of the dollar goes to overhead costs for CEO salaries or big marketing campaigns. 80 cents of every dollar has to go for health benefits. And they have to turn that data in every year. Last year, we returned almost $2 billion to consumers across the country, $2 billion. And we got calls from all over the country from people saying, I just got a check from my insurance company. You know, this never happens. And what they said is, it's because you said they had to send me a check. And it, that's basically the, the case. So I think what we're going to see is a very different kind of competitive market. And that competition in and of itself should help moderate prices. We've seen that happen in the market in the last three years. And I think we're going to continue to see that. Um, leadership is especially challenging in an age of uh, 24-7 cable and every blogger wants to attack you, etc. Um, what? Not uh, me. Not, no, present company excluded. Um, what uh, words of advice might you have for somebody who really feels driven to public service but is frankly deterred by just the, the mudslinging and how ugly it has become? Well, I wish I could assure anyone looking at public service that um, it, it would be easier, um, but it's not. And I think that the 24-7 you know, sort of privacy invasions, the um, constant um, haranguing, um, often in areas that just don't even have factual basis. I think that's what drives me the craziest is Somebody saying something becomes real, and then other people comment on that, and it becomes more real. And um, you really want to say that it it isn't true. You know, it never happened. It doesn't exist. But that doesn't seem to stop the the dialogue. Having said that, I can't imagine um, a better way to spend a workday than doing work. First of all, that you love, and that 
you feel is really making a difference to other people. Um, and somebody's going to make these decisions. Somebody's going to make them at the mayor's level and at the city council level and in Congress and in the Senate and at the presidential level. There are going to be people who make decisions every day that affect your lives. And um, yes, it's difficult. I, you know, people always say, oh, I, I could never get into politics because of all the politics. Um, and every time I talk to a friend of mine in the corporate world or in the academic world, um, every organization has politics, and sometimes ferocious politics. Not academia. Um, that's what I'm told. That's what I'm told. Um, and at least in, in the case of the public arena, it's out in the open. Um, the battles, at least you know a bit who's coming at you. You have some opportunity to respond. Um, in some of these worlds, I'm not sure that you even know where the battles are. It just um, it can be very dicey. So that somehow the assumption that staying out of public life and public office removes you from dealing with nasty politics or personal assaults and attacks or um, you know, difficult rumors, I think, may be delusional. Um, and I would say the rewards are huge. Uh, certainly not in terms of um, big bucks and praise and glory, but the opportunity to really feel like you're making a difference and to watch that difference come to fruition and know that it not only affects you and your family and maybe your neighborhood, but millions of people who will be the beneficiaries. And that's, that's pretty satisfying. Um, I'd like to open this up to questions in uh, just a minute, so uh, both from the online audience and those of you here in the room, um, for the latter, if you want to at least you know, map your way to the microphones. And, and while you're doing that, let me ask Secretary Sebelius um, one final thing, I hope combining leadership and healthcare reform. Um, in, under the headline of what has been implemented more easily or perhaps less easily than one might have anticipated. The states, of course, were are uh, expected to be the prime operators of the healthcare exchanges, but of course not all of them have expressed interest in doing so. Um, but even those that have said that they would like to operate their own healthcare exchange, um, it's complicated. Some of them didn't get started, perhaps, as early as they should have. And there are questions about whether some of those who seem willing will be able, will, will have it all together in time for January 1st of 2014. Um, so I'm wondering, um, how closely is HHS watching those who, again, with goodwill, are hoping, trying to do it and to make the deadline, but are you watching to see if they will? And when might you step in and say, you're not going to make it, guys? Well, we are um, doing a lot of very active one-on-one -on -one consultation with states around the country because a number are, um, as you say, wanting to run their own markets. A number of others are in partner with HHS, so they're running pieces of the market and then some will be running all together. And um, it's, it's really, I would say, a daily conversation. Um, I, it's not January 1st, it's October 1st of 2013 when open enrollment begins. And so we'll be um, watching, monitoring, testing, uh, making sure that people really are able to uh, both handle the um, 
setup of the markets and open enrollment, also to receive the uh, enrollment information for new Medicaid beneficiaries, because all of that goes live in 2014. And it's a big, it's a big lift. And I would say it's a, it's a job that no one has ever done in this country before. Um, no pressure. Not to put it too fine a point on it. The last big expansion was um, Part D and Medicare when a drug benefit was added a number of years ago, but we knew who the audience was. They were already enrolled in um, Medicare. So uh, this, is, this is a relatively new venture and we'll have a lot of partners across the country and a lot of partners across federal government, but we're working very closely with states on really technical details on what exactly is in place now, what do you need to be in place, what's your timeline, how many contracts have you let, where are you, and that, that is a state-by-state -state discussion. Well, thank you. Um, I'm going to alternate left and right just because my back is to you guys. I, I do know that you exist. And let's start with this side. Can you hear me? Okay. <laughs> um, good afternoon, Secretary. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, my name is Denise Asafuji. I'm an MPH student here um, in health policy and management, and I'm also a medical student at the University of Michigan. I was just curious um, if you could comment on effective ways that you have seen physicians get involved um, at the local level um, in your role as governor, and also um, if you could comment on pathways for physicians to become involved in the future and working at your agency and kind of having a larger um, impact in regards to healthcare. Sure. Um, good luck to your team tonight, by the way. Um, I think that um, one of the really exciting things that um, is part of what I call this transformation underway is returning uh, a lot of uh, power to physicians. Um, and if we really are um, able to make a shift from acute care to preventive care, which is part of all of this effort. That's, again, one of the most effective ways to change the cost trajectory is really get people in healthier shape in the first place, help keep them in healthier shape, and not deal so much with acute care. That really is about primary care, and it's about preventive care, and it's about the role of um, primary care providers. So physicians, I think, can play an enormous role in um, dealing with all of these new care strategies, uh, much more up close and personal. And I've watched the kind of community efforts where, whether it's in a health center, with a health center work in conjunction with a local hospital, a lot of that creative work is going on here in Boston. Um, to really sort of triage out of an emergency room and get people relocated into health homes, which actually then have a care strategy or um, work around children's health uh, from the beginning. Um, I, I think physicians have an extraordinary new opportunity to be direct care providers in a way that hasn't really happened um, for a while. I think some of the team care delivery is, is very exciting, and everybody seems to now be moving toward strategies where everyone is empowered to make decisions. Um, so again, I think uh, physicians, both as care providers, but also as policy leaders, uh, you cannot underestimate how powerful your voice is, and how, whether it's with your own patients, 
um, but also testifying in the legislative arena, participating in forums in a community level. Um, you know, I can do some of that, and people say, oh, yeah, but you're with HHS, you know, you're the spin doctor, you're going to. But a local doctor um, who actually says, this is what goes on in my practice, this is why this is important, this is what's happening, has just an extraordinary impact. I mean, a, a very, very powerful voice in the, in the public arena. And certainly, uh, you know, I am blessed to work in a department full of talented, capable doctors, many of whom are balancing some ongoing clinical role with public policy, or they're coming in and out. They, they spend a couple of years kind of in the field and then they come back in. I mean, the, the head of the FDA is the former New York Health Commissioner, as is the head of CDC. Um, the, um, the head of our emergency preparedness work still works in a clinic in DC a day a week because she said, I don't want to get too far away from the action. So we have people who are you know, moving in and out between clinical practice and policy in an extraordinary way, and then sharing their talents with people all over the, the country and the world. On this side. Karen Edmonds, I'm a professor here in the Associate Dean for Research. Thank you so Hi. much for being with us today. Sure. Looking over the last four years, um, one of the really impressive things to me is how um, effective your um, team has been in bringing various parts of government together to collaborate on the issues that affect the public's health. And I think tobacco control has been a really outstanding example of that. Um, the first national strategic plan for tobacco control, CMS coverage of tobacco treatment services, all of the work going on at FDA and the development of a whole field of regulatory science. I wonder if you could speak to how you've been able to accomplish that and what you see for tobacco control in the next term. Well, I think it's, it starts with the president, who has really been a believer that um, we are better uh, as cabinet members if we leverage the assets of our fellow cabinet members. And um, he has really provided structures and, and a lot of opportunity to work together on issues and initiatives. So in the tobacco area, uh, we deal with everybody from our trade representative, because some of this is sort of international issues. Um, we certainly, our global health office has had a huge impact on, on a lot of the worldwide tobacco initiatives underway from smoke-free workplaces which we're promoting around the world to getting research from countries like Australia who are way ahead of us on package labeling. Um, we uh, have persuaded our, um, a lot of our cabinet fellows to um, provide assets and initiatives and again it's um, it's not unique to HHS. You know, I'm working with uh, the Justice Department uh, in areas uh, around youth violence and a lot of the mental health issues. We work with the Department of Agriculture on a lot of our food issues. So having various departments at the table to provide the lens is critical. What's going on in tobacco um, outside the courts right now is, um, is enormously exciting. We were basically stalled on, I mean, America had done a pretty good job lowering the rate of um, tobacco use uh, to about 20%, um, both kids and adults, but we still had 4,000 kids um, having their first cigarette every day. We had about 1,000 of them becoming lifetime smokers, and the, and the rate was just stalled. So, having not only 
legislation signed finally to regulate tobacco use, and that is through the FDA and sort of a self-funded notion. But then engaging with city partners and state partners and looking at the long-term impact and what the president has sort of previewed, which will be, again, part of the budget conversation, is a major new cigarette tax um, federally, which he will propose as part of the funding stream for early childhood education. Uh, what we know is young smokers are incredibly price sensitive. Um, raising the cigarette tax substantially will have a huge benefit because it will discourage the youngest smokers from ever starting in the first place. But we've got, you know, the Department of Housing and Urban Development now who is creating options for um, HUD residents to choose smoke-free housing sites. That wasn't even thought of or available a couple of years ago. A lot of the outdoor space, thanks to the Department of the Interior, is now smoke-free parks and recreation. We have smoke-free campuses, thanks to Howard Coe and his efforts, uh, where not just the buildings themselves, but the entire campus. Um, is being declared smoke-free, and so universities are stepping up. So there is a lot of activity and creativity going on, knowing that that's one of the huge underlying um, issues behind a lifetime of health costs, and if we really are serious about lowering costs, that's one of the best ways to do it. You know, Help people stop smoking. We've added a benefit to Medicare. We now have a benefit on Medicaid. So you're absolutely right. A lot has happened in four years, and I think we can we can keep going. Question here. Hi, Katie Stuhan. I'm a master's student in the Department of Health Policy and Management. My question is specific to the ACA and the provision of uh, expanding employer-based coverage. The CBO recently came out, and they are suggesting that it's pretty likely that a lot of employers are going to drop coverage and pay the penalty instead, and Deloitte uh, estimates that it's about one in 10 might actually drop their employee coverage and just pay the penalty. Uh, did HHS foresee this as, a, as an outcome, and do you think it's a serious threat to the goal of achieving universal coverage? Well, I think, first of all, there's a lot of speculation about what could and could not happen. Um, about 150 million people have employer-based health coverage. Um, about 24 of those, 24 million of the 150 million, are likely to be uh, impacted in the new market. These are the smallest employers um, or you know, entrepreneurs who are kind of in and out of the marketplace. Um, so the vast majority of employer-based coverage will not really be impacted at all. Um, and whatever impact they've had, they've already seen. Their benefits are changing as they lose their grandfather status to add preventive care and some initiatives, but the, the vast majority of that won't shift at all. What we know about the small business owners, so those 24 million, is that um, in the 10 years before the Affordable Care Act was passed, about 10% um, of small business owners stopped offering coverage, and, and this market has been on a death spiral. More and more small business owners, well before any new health bill is passed, stopped offering coverage because rates kept skyrocketing. Um, people who were healthier would drop out of the market uh, to get other options. People who were sicker would stay in the market. It would raise the rates even more and you'd see more of a gap. So no law passing, this market was dying. What we now will be able to offer that small business owner is two options, um, a, a small business um, market, uh, shop market, where 
uh, an employer will have the same kind of choices that the big competitors have of multiple plans and year two they'll be able to offer those multiple plans to multiple to their employees which they can't right now because they have no market leverage and they'll be paying the same rates as the big guys because they'll suddenly be part of a big pool. So in Massachusetts, there was a lot of speculation before the law was passed that people would drop out of the market. Same deal. You know, they'll pay the penalty. They won't be in the market. Uh, that did not happen in Massachusetts. And in fact, more small business owners offer coverage now than did before the exchange was up and running. There was a new study out in the last two days that said um, the vast majority of people that were interviewed said they plan to stay in the market. Um, about three to four percent said they might look at paying the penalty instead, but I'm not sure anybody really knows until the rates are published, until they talk to their employees. What I know is that I hear from small business owners every day who say the biggest reason we lose employees is we can't offer benefits. The biggest reason that people go work for somebody else is that we cannot provide the kind of benefits. It's, it's more than salary, it's more than anything else. So having affordable coverage, having a competitive market is going to be a big deal for small business owners who are paying right now about 18 to 20 percent more than their large competitors for exactly the same coverage. Before we get to this side, um, Lisa, can we take a question from our online audience? Yes, and I just want to say, can you all hear me? That we have a lot of questions online, and so I know <laughs> people have questions shorter. too, so Sorry. I'll just take this one. This is from Kate Lanaman from the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. As a person of faith, I am very concerned that the proposed rule for implementing no-cost contraceptive coverage under the Affordable Care Act will allow the religious beliefs of an employer to take precedence over a woman's religious beliefs regarding access to no-cost preventative health care, including contraception, is guaranteed under the Affordable Care Act. Allowing an employer's religious beliefs to govern the ability of women to obtain effective contraception will most adversely impact the working poor and younger women, who are the very people who most need the benefits of the Affordable Care Act. How does HHS juggle competing religious, political, and scientific tensions when making policy decisions? Thank you. Well, the law required um, us at HHS to determine a set of benefits, uh, preventive benefits that were specifically missing for women from health policies. Uh, so we actually asked the Institute of Medicine to give a set of recommendations and they came back with uh, 10 different categories which were traditionally missing from a lot of health plans. Um, one of them which has gotten the most attention was contraception and this was to put into place a set of preventive benefits for women's health that um, would be offered with no copay and no um, co-insurance to take down a financial barrier for accessing care and um, the law was proposed to add all of those benefits to the new health plans and we provided a one-year grace period for religious employers who had an objection to contraception based on uh, religious beliefs with the notion that at the end of the day we would provide a strategy for um, upholding the religious beliefs of an employer uh, but yet offering the 
benefits to the employees, just the kind of balance that the question suggests. We have just completed the open comment period for the so-called accommodation, um, and by August 1st of this year, uh, every employer um, will be covered by the law with one exception. Uh, churches and church dioceses as employers are exempted from the, this benefit, but Catholic hospitals, Catholic universities, other religious entities will be providing coverage to their employees starting August 1st. And what we have done in the accommodation is basically find a series of strategies where the employer or the board or the employer group doesn't have to directly offer, pay for, or refer an employee to this coverage. And yet a third-party entity, whether it's a third-party administrator in many of the self-insured plans or an insurance company itself, will offer benefits to employees. So the employees will have access to no-cost range of preventive services, including contraception, uh, and the employer will not have to refer, pay for, or um, uh, make available contraception. And we think that balance um, upholds the religious belief of some and does not impose religious views on an employee who may or may not share those religious beliefs. Having said that, we're being sued. Um, <laughs> just let me make it very clear. Um, not only by some of the religious entities who don't feel that that is appropriate, that they should have nothing to do with this whatsoever, but also by some non-religious employers, uh, Hobby Lobby, um, for instance, uh, whose CEO says he has his own religious exemptions to providing contraception coverage to his employees. So even though he was not ever in the accommodation or in the class group, he has suggested that his religious freedom is being violated uh, by providing a service or benefit that he doesn't believe in. So there, there's a debate going on in court, there's a debate going on, um, but we are about to promulgate the, the final rule, and as of August 1st, um, 2013, every employee who doesn't work directly for a church or a diocese will be included in the benefit package. Let's take a questioner from at the mic before we go back to the online audience. Okay, thank you for being here. My name is Monica Garcia. I'm an MPH student um, from Los Angeles. As a leader at HHS, how do you ensure that you listen to and engage with underserved communities? So I'm specifically thinking of the voices of a rural, a single mother in rural uh, part of Kansas or a mixed citizenship status family in East Los Angeles. Uh, it's a great question. and. Um, I would say the, the way that we do it is um, through a variety of, of methods. Um, I spend a lot of time out and about, and uh, typically in communities which I visit, um, do everything from going into our community health centers, and we run them all over the country, and they often are the health home for everyone from folks who have no insurance at all. It is uh, one of the few places um, where undocumented workers can get health care for themselves and their families. Um, it becomes a, um, a, a health home 
uh, where people actually access more than health benefits are often you know, getting referrals for child care and looking at employment possibilities. So having dialogues in community health centers is very helpful and getting feedback from that pipeline. We run um, programs uh, for a lot of <coughs> providers in underserved communities and try to keep a very open ear. We have um, a lot of programs in the children and family space from childcare centers, early Head Start, um, where again, not only just providing the service, but getting feedback from the beneficiaries and from parents and from families helps inform the policy. So what we try to do on a pretty regular basis is make sure that um, as we provide resources and grant applications, we're also getting feedback about how those programs and policies are impacting people, where the barriers are to access services, what kind of challenges there are. And certainly as we look at implementation of the Affordable Care Act, what we know is that just having the law passed uh, is hugely important, but that doesn't provide people benefits unless we can connect with the folks on the ground, and that is the most complicated in the most underserved communities. So we are currently building very on-the-ground partnerships with um, groups who have cultural competency and language competency in a whole variety of areas. We'll have efforts where it looks much like a voter registration drive where people are actually in neighborhoods knocking on doors, trying to get the word out to people. We're working with faith leaders and healthcare providers and hospitals and community health centers to try and figure out where the most underserved and most unlikely people to know that the law has passed and that benefits are coming their way. And um, a lot of the work, Chris Hager, who, as I said, is on the faculty here, who's our regional director, we have 10 regional offices around the country. And a lot of the work that the regional director and those staff folks do will be trying to build those local relationships to make sure that um, people are aware of what's coming and then have assistance to try and enroll and sign up. So there's a lot going on. We have barely one minute I'm left, sorry. so no, no, no. We are into the lightning round of questions and I will take the moderator's prerogative. Um, among the many leadership challenges you have faced, um, are there uh, particular principles, visions, whatever, that serve as an anchor to you when you confront them? Well, I would say you have to know what you believe. And um, ideally, um, you know, learn more um, every day, but some kind of moral compass is essential. Or you can never figure out how to make a decision about anything, ever. Um, and uh, you know, having a constant debate with yourself about where your moral center is is um, a deadly way to conduct uh, policy discussions. And I think, secondly, you have to be willing to take risks. Um, you won't ever know all that you need to know about any decision, about any area, about any job, about any opportunity. And at a point, you have to just take a deep breath and say, I will learn, I will get better, I will surround myself with people who know far more than I do, but I can do this. Um, and if you don't ever apply for a job, you'll never get it. If you don't ever aren't willing to lose an office, you can never win because you'll never run. 
Um, so you have to, there's a point of risk taking, and I'm not talking about standing on the top of a bridge and jumping off the bridge, risk taking, but I'm talking about, you know, knowing that you really don't know everything that you need to know, but it's going to be okay because you'll find people who know a lot more than you do and you'll ask the right questions and you won't blink. And when people come at you with questions you don't have, you say, I'll figure that out and I'll be right back in touch. Um, you have been a terrific audience, both here and online. Um, Secretary Sebelius, thank you so much for your time and answers. Um, the conversation continues at www.forumhsph.org. Um, and thank you all again. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.